Music has been the heart of Liverpool since the 1950s, with the Beatles achieving the greatest commercial success of their time. But what was it like being the first all-female rock and roll band in the wake of the Beatles? How did they rebel against the expectations of the music industry and forge their own success? Well, I mean, I know that none of us ever regretted, for instance, not taking Brian Epstein's or not going to America for Chuck Berry's manager or the King's manager. If we could do it all over again, we'd do it exactly the same. And what about now? In a world where you can record a song in your bedroom and upload it straight to SoundCloud, where songs get discovered by being used in TikToks, where social media is king and the big record labels only care about their bottom line. How are small record labels in Liverpool defying industry standards and putting their artists first? It's really important for artists to to own their own music, to own their own masters. Um, I mean, it's been some high profile cases recently, like, like Taylor Swift, where, you know, you're tempted by a pot of money when you're 15 and, uh, you know, you sign everything away. This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. I'm content producer Ellie Field, and we, alongside our partners Melodic Distraction Radio, will thread together stories from our collections with experiences of people in Liverpool today, exploring connections between past and present. We start off with a story from Melodic Distraction presenter, Nina Franklin. I can remember the very first time I saw a punk. I was eight years old at the beach with my family and I saw a group of men and women sat up on a concrete walkway overlooking the sand. They were covered in tattoos and piercings. Their ripped clothes were hanging off them and their colourful spiked up Mohicans towered above them. I couldn't stop staring. I was transfixed. They struck me as the most rebellious people I'd ever seen. Working with National Museums Liverpool and Melodic Distraction, I found myself sat opposite the two remaining members of the Liverbirds, a rock and roll band from the 1960s. These two women, now in their 70s, in their floral blouses and pearl earrings, well, you wouldn't blink twice if you were meeting your friend's grandma for tea. As I learned their story, I was again transfixed. They struck me now as the most rebellious people I'd ever seen. Mary and Sylvia have had quite the adventure, but it wasn't touring the world, showing up John Lennon, or even rolling spliffs for Jimi Hendrix that made them rebels. It was their radical rejection of industry norms that made these women so inspirational. I'm Mary, Mary Dostal, uh, used to be McGlory. And I'm Sylvia, Sylvia Saunders Wiggins. And I was the drummer with the Liver Birds, which we enjoyed very much. At the moment, uh, Sylvia and I are enjoying the fact that so many people are interested in our band again. So we're enjoying that as two old pensioners enjoying life again. In the early 1960s, Liverpool was internationally renowned for its music scene. The decade saw the city at the centre of the Mersey Beat sound. 
Some new band called The Beatles were playing down at the Cavern Club and a young 16-year-old Mary McGlory in the audience turned to her cousin and decided to start an all-women group just like that on the spot. After seeing The Beatles at the Cavern, we just thought, well, let's do that, but let's be the first females to do this. It wasn't just a coincidence, it was the way we wanted us. The Lagerbirds were the very, very first all-female rock band. We were all only 16 when it started, and the first, definitely the first, and uh, and the best. (laughs) And that was it. Valerie Gell, Pamela Birch, Mary McGlory and Sylvia Saunders, four Scouse teenagers brought together through a chance advert in a newspaper, were about to become a sensation. We didn't really know each other at all. We came together as friends and, uh, as we say, we didn't really know each other, but the story, of course, is Mary wanted to start a group. Val and I wanted to start a group and we just happened to get together. We saw an advert, Mary had already started processing of a group and we saw the adverts of them. And so we got in touch with them and that's how we come together. We didn't know each other at all. I mean, that's something that really does amaze me when I think about it, that we were confident, even though we were so young and in some ways very, very naive as well. But we were confident and we never for minutes of time thought, we're not good enough to do this. Even when we practiced, when we used to practice, our neighbours never complained. I mean, they must have heard an awful lot of noise, but they never ever knocked on the wall, which I'm sure they would do nowadays if a band started practising in in the parlour, as we call it. After practising and playing in the local Liverpool clubs, the host of the Cavern one day introduced the Liverbirds to John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Infamously, when Mary walked into the cavern dressing room with her guitar case, John Lennon looked her up and down and said, girls don't play guitars. They'd prove him wrong. Just a year later, in 1964, the Liverbirds were residents at the legendary Star Club in Hamburg, the very same venue that helped launch the Beatles to international fame only two years prior. Mary's bass guitar these days hangs in the Museum of Liverpool. But if you were to spin around on the spot, you'd look out the window and see the bronze statue of the Beatles on the pier head. Working as contemporaries in the beat scene, they were continuously billed as the female Beatles or compared in newspapers as the birds and the Beatles. When we went to Hamburg, we became so big anyway. It was like being the Beatles in Liverpool and that. We were so, so big. It was fantastic. The crowds were fantastic. We didn't want to leave because they were so amazing, you know. I mean, the thing is that um, in them days, not many people wrote their own songs. So, and everybody more or less played the same songs, just a little bit different. Uh, And because we were the first females to do it, really all the lyrics were written in a way that a man was singing them. And so we had to change them that it's a woman singing them, you know, and uh, that made it even more interesting, I think, for the music that all of a sudden it was girls singing these songs and not what they were used to up to then, male. And I think that's what uh, made it so special. When you think that people like um, Chuck Berry or Muddy Waters, they had never even heard their songs from women. And um, because we did a more rhythm and blues type of beat, it made it really, really special. 
The Liverbirds went on to tour all over Europe. Austria, Switzerland, Denmark, Holland, Sweden, Germany, you name it. They toured with the Kinks and the Rolling Stones and opened for Chuck Berry in Berlin. Yet even with these accolades under their belts, an all-women group in the 60s music world wasn't exactly an easy ride. Playing beat music wasn't considered a serious occupation for young ladies, and they had to fight for their place and to do things their own way in a male-dominated industry. When Chuck Berry's manager tried to stop the Liverbirds going on stage, Val, the guitarist, had to push him off. They turned down Brian Epstein, the Beatles' manager, when he refused to listen to their touring plans. They even canned their dreams of playing in America, when the offer came in for them to perform in L.A., but only if they played topless. Well, I mean, I know that none of us ever regretted, for instance, not taking Brian Epstein's or not going to America for Chuck Berry's manager or the King's manager. If we could do it all over again, we'd do it exactly the same. There was never a, a disagreement about what things we were going to do and what we didn't want to do. We just were strong as the thought, the way, the way we were. We didn't need to do anything that we didn't want to because we knew that people that wanted us, they wanted us the way we were. Exactly, because we were real good friends. We became really good friends and we all decided ourselves what to do and what not to do. There was never any disagreements. Oh, no, we're going to do that. You're going to do that. No, no. It's amazing, really. I mean, you can't believe it, but it's true. The importance and strength of female friendship comes up again and again. Where the Beatles broke up acrimoniously and the Kinks had fights with each other on stage, the Liverbirds called an end to the band when they no longer got to work together the way they wanted. Sylvia fell pregnant and was told that she needed to stop drumming for the health of her unborn baby. And Val took on care responsibilities for her partner who'd been paralysed in a car accident. Boo-hoo to what record labels or tour managers might think. When it wasn't fun for them anymore, the Liverbirds called time. In an exploitative, image-obsessed, fast-paced music industry, can there be anything more rebellious than sticking to your values, standing by your morals, or standing up for your friendships? You would be surprised of how many young girls came up to us afterwards and said, you've just been an inspiration to us to carry on doing the music. We love it and we absolutely love what you do. And there was plenty of good things and we, you know, I wouldn't regret anything that we've done. We've been, it's been absolutely a marvellous journey, the four of us. And it's a pity there's only two of us still now because the other girls would have loved this, all that's happening. As far as regrets, I've got none at all. And I don't think any of us did have any regrets of what we did. It was an adventure. And I'd go on that again. I'd love, I'd love to do it again just now. There's something so powerful and moving about how these four women from Liverpool had their talents, adventures, and their time in the limelight, but it's their friendship and integrity that shines strongest through the story. Starting and maintaining a project in friendship is no mean feat in an industry that's notorious for being ruthlessly capitalist. Cheesy as it is, maybe just being truly authentic was the real rebellion the whole time. Scousers in general have a strong history of dancing to the beat of their own drum. 
but is this spirit of rebellion still alive today? Liverpool is home to a vast number of record labels, large and small, that are pushing the boundaries and fighting the fight for artists. A record label with these David and Goliath aims is based in a little record shop down a busy road in the city centre. In 2016, Neil Tilly opened his record shop, 81 Renshaw Street. The building has great significance in the Liverpool music scene, as it used to be the headquarters for the Mersey Beat, a music magazine made to reflect and promote the outpouring of new music talent that Liverpool was producing in the early 1960s. In 2019, after establishing a successful business, Neil decided it was time to get more involved and set up his own record label, 9 by 9 Records. When I when I started the label, um, it was through a desire really to to help promote local artists, develop artists, and uh, basically end up with uh, you know work with them from scratch, uh, from an idea and see that through to a finished product. Neil wanted to make sure his record label was fair on the artists, so he made sure the music ownership always stayed with them. It's, it's really important for artists to to own their own music, to own their own masters. Um, I mean, it's been some high profile cases recently like like Taylor Swift where you know you're tempted by a pot of money when you're 15 and uh, you know you sign everything away um, but what we do is we we license the music to, to, to the label um, for a set period of time so ultimately the the ownership is still with the artist um, and then we'll put it out in whatever formats we agree um, but certainly if if an artist is 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 approached by a, a major especially they should really tread carefully you know I mean they may was they may well get on with the the A&R guy and that the label but that can all change you know they can move on um, and things can move very quickly when the record label started signing more bands he decided to bring in Christian to help support with social media and much more Christian also has experience in the music industry and really resonated with Neil's way of doing things I think in this, in in a, the case of any sort of independent record label, it should always be the way. I was always spooked when I was younger by a friend's band that I knew, and they, you know, they'd had a little bit of success. I think they got played some XFM play and things like that. They sort of hooked up with um, some fellow who had some money and lived in Wales, and I think he had a recording studio, and they signed all of their music away. And they were they were a very formative stage at a band, as a band. I think they were all like 18. And, you know, they, they ended up breaking up years later. I, I was asking if there was, you know, their music was still available for me to release on Spotify just because I felt like it was something that should be on Spotify. And they were like, you know, we can't, we don't have any contact with this guy. We don't know where the the music is or anything. So that sort of just put me in a position where I'd never want to do that to another band, you know, and, and you know, <laughs> bands should, band should have the rights to their own music because of PRS and if they work with Centric or companies like that. But even from my own point of view, I don't want that responsibility. <laughs> I don't want to own anyone else's music. But this kind of experience isn't unique to artists of today. Back in the 80s, bands were being drawn into record labels by signing seven record deals, only to be dropped a year or two later when they weren't deemed relevant enough. And unfortunately, the contracts they signed stopped them from owning the rights to the albums they produced. One of the most infamous legal disputes between artist and label was that of Prince v Warner in 1993. Warner was stopping Prince from releasing music which led him to take on the name the artist formerly known as Prince. 
in what would be one of the biggest legal battles the music industry has ever seen. One of the bands we're working with, 16 Tambourines, we're, we're putting out uh, an album by them in December. They signed a seven-album deal with Arista at the end of the 80s and uh, were dropped after the first album, basically, which sold quite well and they, they did a world tour and everything. But um, we thought, well, great, let's reissue this. Uh, so I contacted Sony and this, it's all still owned by Sony today and they wanted 26%, uh, you know, as a... As a basically to uh, for to release the re-release the first album so we're putting out the long awaited second album <laughs> yeah that was good Should go in and listen to that one working with large scale record companies certainly has its downsides but it has one major benefit that Neil and Christian can't provide and that's money the sacrifice you make as a DIY record label is that you can't throw a lot of money into advertising and marketing Neil and Christian make up for this by working with the artists more closely, combining contacts and supporting with social media. Their approach is far more organic and relies on the artist's passion for making music. We're led by the artists, really, um, very much so. I mean, you know, uh, whether it's down to the artwork or, or, or how, how to promote, I mean, they, they would have had some... Um, experience themselves of, of dealing with certain media and uh, we basically have we'll have meetings with them how we want to approach that if they if they have a management that they obviously get involved um and with christian on board you know we have the social media cover but we we do you know it's fair to say we do rely on the artists as well because we're, we're, we're a small label we haven't got a endless pot of money to to throw at things so we do rely on the the artists working with us um you know we we we, we have database of, of contacts for whether that be physical magazines and media uh, blogs um, and we we you know get it out there as much as we can we like to let the artists um, you know be led by the the artists in those those kind of decisions certainly the creative decisions what Christian and Neil have to negotiate with their way of doing things is the balance of when and where they input and offer advice full creative control must sound great to most musicians but in reality, it can be daunting when you have to make all the decisions. This is where Christian and Neil feel they can help the most. They can offer their experience and expertise to guide the artists so that they never feel like they have to give up their creative vision, but are not overwhelmed by the many choices they have to make. One of our upcoming releases, which isn't announced yet, we'd seen artwork for it a couple of weeks ago and we, we loved the artwork. But then the person who in question is is like mega creative and just, you know, spirals off on different ideas all the time. So it turned to like a meeting last Tuesday and, and he was like, well, we're going to change the artwork. And me and Neil were like, oh, but we really like what you've already done. And by about five o'clock that evening he was like here's the new artwork so we were like you know in that situation I would only offer any sort of advice or input if it looked if it didn't look professional or it didn't look like you know the, the right image quality or anything like that that's when you'd sort of offer that advice like this isn't going to look good if we print it onto an LP or or anything like that in terms of social media um, I mean, I remember my first involvement was with with Welligan when he was releasing his album in the mean meantime, and the first thing he said to me was like, "Well, I can do all the social media side of it myself." And I think there's a lot of that. Like, I probably thought that prior to working in the record shop, but if I scroll back to like last August and see my first posts. I would probably be quite embarrassed, <laughs> you know. So once you started getting, you know, ramping up and getting more in touch with 
you know, the workings of social media and how, you know, how people interact with the quality of an image or the quality of a video, uh, all that kind of thing is where I can offer people uh, a little bit more insight, even just for our own numbers in the shop, like this is what works, this is what people interact with the most. And that seems to be, it seems to be helpful. The motivations of 9 by 9 are simple. They do it for the love of music and vinyl. We truly do believe in the artists that we have on. You know, this isn't a vanity project or anything. It's it's about, you know, working with people who we really, really do appreciate. And it's for the love of working in the record shop and the, mm. the love of, of vinyl itself. And we do really appreciate even if you took five minutes to listen to one of the songs. So thank you for that. The term rebel has many definitions. But the one that suits both the Liverbirds and 9x9 records is as follows to resist authority, control, or convention. The Liverbirds resisted convention as the first all-female rock and roll band. They resisted control and authority by saying no to Epstein and making their own decisions about what they did as a band. 9 by 9 resist the conventions by handing that authority and control back to their musicians. But they aren't alone. Labels like Eggy Records and Merciful Sounds have similar aims in Liverpool. As Nina pointed out, the idea of rebels in music can be too obvious. The rebels we've talked to today didn't throw TVs out of windows. They didn't spit in our faces and start a riot. They defied patriarchy. They said no. They supported instead of controlled. And most of all, they were motivated by their love for music. Thanks for listening to the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe for more stories across our varied collections. From Liverpool film and art as a mental health aid to heroes on the Mersey and even space exploration, you can find all our episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. 